Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Professor Tom Kirkwood, Director of the Institute for Ageing and Health at Newcastle University, will explore how the ageing process is influenced by a broad range of lifestyle and environmental factors. Well, good evening everyone, and can I welcome you to our 40th biannual lecture. This is our anniversary year. We've been having various events to celebrate the fact that we've been going for, for all this time. I know quite a few of you came along to our, our reception at the university a few weeks ago, and it's nice to see you here again this evening. And tonight, in a way, we're carrying on our celebrations with this lecture, and uh, we've got an exceedingly good speaker for you this evening. I'm sure you're in for a, a real treat We've had many good lectures over the years and uh, many eminent speakers and certainly our our speaker tonight comes into that category very nicely indeed. And his topic, of course, is very uh, very pertinent to many of us in terms of of ageing. Some of us perhaps are slightly more interested in the topic than than others. I know the first time I heard Tom speak on this subject of ageing, it was quite interesting how the audience seemed to polarise into two groups – you could see all the young members of the audience really enjoying the, the information they were being given. All the older ones were sitting there taking notes. <laughs> as I say, our speaker is, is very eminent as a, a scientist. Um, Professor Kirkwood originally trained as a mathematician at, at Cambridge and went on to do a PhD in, in, in biology at Oxford. He worked for many years as head of the mathematical biology unit at the MRC National Institute for Medical Research and has maintained that interest in the application of, of mathematics to biology and medicine ever since. He was the first professor of biological gerontology. That was at the University of, of Manchester. And he's currently professor of medicine at Newcastle University and also director of the very prestigious Institute for Ageing and Health at Newcastle University. Excellent organisation. He's had several international prizes for his research and over 300 papers published, a very eminent scientist in, in his field. And some of you will recall that he gave the Reith Lectures a few years ago on ageing, a very, very good set of lectures, um, and more recently has been a special advisor to the House of Lords Science and Technology Select Committee, which looked at scientific aspects of ageing. So a very eminent speaker and a very nice person as well, on, on top of all that eminence and uh, achievement. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Professor Kirkwood to Bath. It's really nice that you could come along, and please can we give Professor Kirkwood a really good welcome for the 40th biannual lecture. Well, thank you very much, uh, and uh, thank you, Roger, for the uh, kind introduction. Uh, it's a real delight to be here uh, and to join with you in celebrating 40 years, which I think for academic institutions is really very considerable longevity. Of course, it's nothing at all compared to the longevity of this lady here. This is the current world record holder for human longevity. Uh, this being an Olympics year, I think we should celebrate extreme achievement. Uh, and some of you will recognize Madame Jeanne Calmont who died uh, 11 years ago now at the remarkable age of 122 years and five months. Uh, So if you want to break the world record, uh, she's the one you're chasing. 
Um, we can be quite sure that no one will exceed her limit for the 2012 Olympics because no one is uh, within four years of 122. <laughs> um, but uh, she does act as a reminder of what is going on. Um, I've chosen, obviously, uh, in relation to the, the theme of BIME as an institution, the idea of looking at engineering uh, in the broadest sense and its contribution uh, that it can make to confronting what government now recognizes as the grand challenge of population aging. Um, uh, you will have gathered from the introduction, and you will gather from what I say later on, that I am not an engineer, um, although we do have some interests that relate very strongly to the kinds of things that are going on here down in Bath. Um, and what I would like to do is to cover some of the lessons that are emerging from our scientific understanding of the aging process, and then to look at the way that different disciplines need to come together in order to be able to deliver the solutions to these really important issues of our time. Now, one of the interesting things about working in the field of ageing is that it's an incredibly familiar process. Um, I was hearing earlier from Roger about his grandchildren, and I think his older grandchild, grandson is two and a half years old. Well, he's pretty much nearing the point at which he will realise something rather important in life, and he will realise that his grandparents are... I'm sorry to say, you know, sort of older um, and therefore, uh, you know, sort of perhaps frailer uh, than uh, his parents and that he is, him he is himself. Because for most of us, it's usually about age three or four that this realisation dawns on us. And it's pretty earth-shattering in a young life to sort of understand the inevitability of mortality. And we grow up and we form a whole variety of ideas about old age and the ageing process. One of the interesting things about doing science in this field is that we've learned over the last few uh, years, couple of decades, that nearly everything we think we know about the ageing process is wrong. So it's also quite exciting because you get into heated argument with people who really are sure that they know that you are talking nonsense and therefore you have to work quite hard to get the message across. But get that message across is really, really important. And what we have to do is to look at uh, you know, aging as it presents itself to us. These are two images of the same individual, the painter Augustus John, taken approximately 50 years apart. The left-hand image is uh, Augustus John pretty much at the prime of his life, uh, and then the image on the right-hand side is taken quite near to the time of his death. Same person, same DNA, same everything, but something profound has changed. So what we have to ask, if we're looking at this from a scientific perspective, is what happened. And then if we want to go deeper into the science of this, we may ask why. And of course, we're going to need to address what we might do about some of these changes. Interest in the idea of extreme old age is nothing new. And if you go back to the Bible, you will find that there are records of all sorts of people who lived very long lives. Um, you don't have to go back quite that far to find that there's been this sort of playing around with the fantasy of living a very long time. Um, and one of the more intriguing cases is that which was reported of Thomas Parr, who was known as the old, old, very old man. And if you go to Westminster Abbey, you'll find a remarkable tombstone inscription. And the brief CV of this guy was that he lived in Shropshire. Um, uh, interesting things were said about him. He was said to be, have been convicted of incontinence after he had passed his hundredth year. Now, that doesn't mean 
that he soiled his pants. This was sexual incontinence, uh, for which the punishment was to stand in the churchyard of his parish church, wound in a sheet while people uh, sort of said bad things to him. Um, He came to the attention of the Earl of Arundel, who thought it would be a fine thing to bring him up to London to present him to the king, uh, which was done. Uh, But um, London was not a particularly healthy place for an old man. He was very old. Uh, He was overcome by the sickness of London, uh, died rapidly, and actually he had his autopsy done by William Harvey. Now, um, could he have lived as long as he's reputed to have lived, which is really uh, uh, an extraordinarily long time from 1483 to 1635? Uh, The answer actually is no, and we know that the records that were examined in great detail by the librarian of the House of Lords in the late 19th century established that this is entirely a work of fiction. Um, And so what we have to do is to get behind the fiction and get to the facts of longevity. And that's really what I want to do. I want to address a number of key questions during the course of the lecture. I want to talk a little bit about our scientific understanding of why ageing occurs. I want to talk a bit about what that means for a much-discussed question as to whether there is a limit to the length of human life. I then want to broaden the discussion and sort of address some questions about how society will cope with what is happening with increasing life expectancies. For example, do longer lives mean inevitably more diseases? Can we afford what is happening? And then I want to turn towards the, uh, the latter part of the talk to addressing some of the questions about how engineers can contribute to this. And of course, this is really... I come from Newcastle, so I'm not carrying coals to Newcastle. This is carrying something from Newcastle to Bath, where you do an awful lot of this stuff already. Uh, but we, uh, we, we, I think, share an important agenda here. So what is the ageing process? And it's deeply mysterious. I entered this field because I was driven by curiosity about you know, what is it that leads cells to deteriorate in their function and over the course of decades to go wrong in ways that make us more vulnerable to pathology. And when we study the aging process, we can study it at the level of the ingredient molecules that make up our cells. We can look at cells, we can look at tissues, we can look at systems. So there's a lot of scope to be able to investigate this process. And actually, it's a science that has an intriguing history, because if you you go back uh, to the latter years of the 19th century, we find that there were some really profound insights into the biology of ageing that we owe to the great German naturalist August Weissmann. And what Weissmann recognised was that in terms of the biology of ageing, there is an intriguing conundrum uh, that arises from what he recognised to be two very different categories of cells that make up our bodies. Weissmann, thinking about cell lineages, saw immediately that there is a lineage of cells that continues from generation to generation that he termed the germline. And that's basically the lineage that's transmitted through the gonads, the gametes, the sperm and the egg that form the new generation. And that these are fundamentally different in one important respect from the cells that make up the ordinary tissues and organs of the body, which he termed the soma. And that is that the soma is mortal, whereas the germline has this intrinsic capacity for immortality in the important sense that it has not stopped its division and propagation over an extraordinary length of time. The germline 
And those are the cells from which each one of us is descended. It's worth just reflecting on this for a moment. As you're sitting listening to me, you have a body which is made up of approximately 100 million million cells. Every single one of those cells could, if the records were available, trace its ancestry through an unbroken chain of cell division that goes back 4 billion years to the emergence of the earliest life forms on this planet. So you may worry about your mortality, but in a sense you are the most extraordinary proof of cellular immortality because you have this unbelievable history represented within the tissues of our bodies. But the conundrum that Weissman saw so clearly was that the soma is different. Now, that leads us into some really exciting and deep areas of biology, and I'd love to have time to take you further into those, but I do just want to give you one very interesting instance that uh, obsessed people in the 18th century, and this is uh, what was known then as the enigma of the polyp. The polyp is the, the little animal hydra, that if you remember your school biology days, you find in stagnant water. And the interesting thing about hydra is that, unlike us, they do not age. Uh, Biologists have observed hydra over periods of years in the laboratory, and they show no signs of increasing frailty, increasing vulnerability to death. What's more, you can actually abuse hydra in very um, extreme ways by chopping them up into small pieces. Uh, And you're not really being unkind to the hydra because each of the pieces then regenerates itself into a whole new individual. So in some sense, an organism like this is endowed with a property of immortality. And the interesting thing about this is that it turns out that hydra can do this because they effectively have germ cells distributed throughout the structure of their bodies. So this is the immortality of Weissmann's germline in action. But for the rest of us, the difficulty is that we are made up of soma. Now, why is this relevant to aging, and how do we understand why it is that aging occurs? Um, and it was really this point that was my entry into the science of aging, uh, which uh, occurred some 31 years ago. And I was thinking about why organisms should undergo an aging process at all. And it really relates to Weissmann's idea of the soma, because I was thinking... The soma could, in principle, be immortal like the hydra or like the germline. We have cells that are similar to those other cells. We could keep them going. Why don't we? And the answer really comes from almost a framework of thinking about it in terms of reliability engineering. We could invest sufficient resource in the maintenance of the cells and the tissues and structures of the soma that we could keep going indefinitely. But... In nature, bodies don't keep going indefinitely, and they don't have need to keep going indefinitely. If we look at the survival of animals in wild populations, we see that mortality is such that animals die long before they have the opportunity to reveal what you would see if you kept them in protected environments, and that's the intrinsic process of aging. Mortality occurs not because of intrinsic deterioration, but because animals in their natural environment are exposed to very heavy levels of mortality from predators, from infections, from accidents, from starvation, um, uh, and, uh, and the rest. So then you ask, how much should our genomes invest in keeping the body going? And the answer turns out to be interesting and really quite simple. The body should invest enough in maintenance and repair systems, so this is the sort of the bioengineering of the body, 
that the body has a reasonable chance of surviving through its natural expectation of life in the wild environment in good condition. But to invest more in the maintenance and repair of our somatic cells and structures than we need to get through this expectation of life would actually be a waste of energy, a waste of resource. And we're beginning to discover now just how expensive it is to maintain cells and keep the body going. So in a sense, we come to an understanding of the ageing process that follows very sound engineering principles. They're the sorts of principles that uh, Henry Ford applied when he was engineering mass-produced cars, like the Model T Ford. Uh, he didn't want his engineers to over-invest in the durability of the cars, so he sent them around the scrapyards of America to see which bits had not failed. And if he found a bit which consistently had not failed then he would go back to the design team and say, we're wasting money on this because this, you know, sort of, you know, this is over-engineered. So the same principles apply for the biological determinants of the reliability of our bodies. And from this kind of logic come some pretty important predictions that relate to the ageing process. And the first thing is that contrary to what most people believe, we are not, in fact, programmed to die. Quite the reverse. The body is programmed for survival. And even in the last seconds of an individual's life, the cells and vital systems in the body are doing their utmost to keep you alive. But they fail. And the reason they fail is that in our ancestral environment, where all the biological determinants of our systems evolved, investments in things like reproduction were a much higher priority than investments in a capacity for long-term survival. Now, this is really important because for many people, there is an automatic assumption that the body is somehow programmed to age and die. And actually, this logic fits with what we are discovering in experimental science with laboratory organisms uh, and with the molecular and cellular mechanisms, and that is that there is no genetic program for aging. There is a genetic programming for longevity, and that comes through how genes invest in the maintenance and repair systems that keep us going. But it's very important because what it tells us is that ageing is caused simply by the build-up of faults. So if we have a car or a washing machine or a, you know, sort of an, a, a coat that we like, they deteriorate because as they live their lives, they accumulate defects. And it's exactly the same with our bodies. There is no active process that's driving this. And this essentially has profound significance for our understanding of ageing and for our ambition for what we might do about it. Because what it means is that the ageing process is, in essence, really quite straightforward. That it's driven by the lifelong accumulation of random molecular damage that leads in time to an accumulation of cellular defects that leads through a timescale of some decades to the emergence of age-related frailty, disability and disease. It also, which is very important, underlines that this is a life course process. Aging does not begin when you're 40 or 50 or 60 or whenever you think a person begins to become old. This accumulation of random molecular damage that will ultimately bring about your aging is something that occurs very early in your life and is happening even while the baby is still in the womb. But the other important thing about this understanding of the ageing process is that it allows us to make sense of the accumulating evidence that there's quite a lot about the way we live and manage our lives that impacts on how ageing develops. We're learning that stress can exacerbate the accumulation of molecular damage and intrinsically make us age faster. 
We're learning that living in adverse, unsupportive environments can expose us to adverse factors that can accelerate this accumulation of damage. And we're learning, and this is particularly important in today's world, that poor nutrition can make us age faster. It's not that a diet that's rich in saturated fats or too much sugar, you know, sort of necessarily makes you fat. It does tend to make you overweight, and that tends to bring in its train certain health problems. But more profoundly than that, it actually makes you age faster. So it accelerates that accumulation of intrinsic molecular damage that underpins the aging process. Now, that presents the story as if it was all terribly bad news and all one way. But, of course, the good news here is that we have amazing maintenance and repair systems that keep the body going. I could uh, spend uh, you know, sort of at least half an hour scaring you with information about all the things that are going wrong in your body at the moment. Uh, and this is happening because, although you may feel that you're sitting quietly listening to me and that nothing very much is going on in your bodies, a lot of bad stuff is happening. And some of that bad stuff is happening because you are doing the wrong things. For example, you're breathing. Um, please, you know, don't stop breathing because worse things might happen fairly quickly if you were to do that. But the fact that you're breathing means that you're taking oxygen in from the environment and that's being transported through your bloodstream to your cells where it's being burned to provide the energy that supports life. But just as with a real fire, where there is a danger that sparks will escape from the fireplace and perhaps start a fire in the house, in your cells, where that oxygen is burning, we have sparks that escape in a biochemical sense, and these are known popularly as free radicals, and these produce the molecular damage that contributes to the aging process. It's been estimated that every day of your life, each one of your 100 million million cells will acquire 1,000 damaging hits to its DNA from free radicals alone. And there's a whole lot of other bad stuff happening. So as you're sitting there, your body is being hammered by an incredible onslaught of molecular damage. The good news is that you've got armies of repair enzymes that are working at the limit of their capacity to hold that damage in check. And you can help them. You can help them by adopting healthy lifestyles. You can help them by taking exercise. You can help them by eating foods that are rich in, for example, natural antioxidants. We're also learning interesting things about processes of inflammation that contributes a lot to many of the degenerative conditions of aging and how anti-inflammatory factors can help sort of quench the damage that arises from these roots. So what we're beginning to understand now is a great deal about the dynamic nature of the aging process. And this gives us a handle on how we can sort of bring interventions from a number of different perspectives to try to help us age individually better. I said earlier that it's important to understand that the damage is accumulating throughout the life course. Uh, And so some of the things that we want to do should really be begun from as early as possible. It's never too early to adopt interventions that will improve your prospects of reaching a healthy old age. Because as your cells divide during the early stages of embryogenesis, and then as they divide as you grow from a baby to a full-grown adult, cell division is occurring and division itself induces damage. So we're beginning to learn quite a lot about the mechanisms through which this damage is actually building up. When we get into the lab and we measure these things, we discover that they're inherently very complicated. 
I've talked to you about free radicals. These are known more technically as reactive oxygen species, and you will see that they appear in some of these damaging arrows that impact on all of the mechanisms that underpin cellular life. Uh, Within these cells is also a set of little organelles known as mitochondria, and these are very important because these are the sources of cellular energy. They produce the energy that's in the form of ATP, but they also produce these sparks that I referred to earlier in the form of reactive oxygen species. So a very interesting branch of new science is beginning to develop the capacity using uh, computational tools to represent and understand how these processes interact and synergize to produce defects. And we have within my institute a major center on systems biology, which is using some really quite advanced engineering technology to use sort of high-throughput devices to allow us to investigate these processes in the detail that's going to be necessary to identify where in these complex networks we want to intervene. What's quite interesting about this also is that it allows us to begin to make connections between our understanding of the aging process, which is really going from very sort of small instances of damage to the accumulation of damage, which then sort of has a kind of scattergun effect and hits individual cells within aging tissues. So this is really the process of aging, but it's also, to a very important extent, the process by which many of the age-associated diseases develop. And when you look at it in these terms, it becomes rather hard to draw a sharp line between intrinsic mechanisms of aging and the mechanisms that underlie the development of a condition like Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease or osteoporosis. And what's also fascinating is that as we do the basic science, and we get sort of upstream into the headwaters of these damaging processes that contribute to a particular disease, perhaps Alzheimer's disease, we discover something rather exciting, and that is that we are in the same headwaters that contribute to a spectrum of other diseases. So there's the opportunity here to be able to design interventions that can target multiple conditions that may lead to impaired quality of life as we get older. So the scientific challenges are sort of emerging and we need to do some pretty hard science and we need to do some pretty hard computational biology. But at the end of the day, this all connects with real life. And I've pinched this slide from some of our colleagues at Unilever, uh, a company that all of you will know, a major uh, lifestyle nutrition company that is very interested in how they can develop everyday products for everyday people that will allow us to try to beat the biological clock. And basically, this is exploiting the malleability of the aging process that is revealed by the science that I've just summarized very briefly. So if we adopt the right lifestyle, we can perhaps age more slowly than the number of candles on our birthday cake. So we are biologically younger uh, than our age would suggest. Unfortunately, too many people these days are still doing the wrong things and aging faster Uh, biologically than they are chronologically. But it makes it meaningful to be able to think in terms of this kind of ambition. In order to do that, we need a lot of information. Um, And uh, we're engaged at the moment in a very big study in our institute in Newcastle, uh, which is measuring on a cohort of 85-year-olds. We got permission to approach everyone within Newcastle and North Tyneside Uh, area, uh, health areas, uh, who was born in 1921 and asked them to take part in a study that measured pretty well 
you know, sort of everything that could easily be accessed about them. So those are their socioeconomic circumstances, their family background, how they live, how they get about, what kind of work they did, what they eat, uh, information on their genetics. Uh, we get blood samples from them, which we get back into the lab within an hour of the blood being in the person's veins, and we measure a lot of markers of molecular damage. And what we hope to do is to be able to sort of get an understanding from that of the factors that influence how we make the journey through life, in this instance from age 85 uh, up to age 90. And it's this kind of information that we need to provide the matrix against which we can then begin to assess how interventions, and these may be engineering interventions, they may be nutritional interventions, they may be exercise-based interventions or whatever, are having an impact on quality of life. So just to review the questions that uh, I've put up up until now. I've explained to you how we believe aging occurs. Um, And the answer to the second question, is there a limit to the human lifespan, should be fairly clear from what I've said already, and that is that there's nothing programming a limit into human longevity. It's plastic. Uh, And there is absolutely no reason why somebody should not break Madame Calmont's record. And it may be you if you make the right kind of choices and if you're lucky enough. So it brings us to the other domain, and that really is the key one that confronts us, which is how will society cope? Do longer lives mean more diseases? Can we afford increasing lifespans? And the all-important question for institutes like by me, what can engineers contribute to this process? So I'm going to address the, the first two of those questions more quickly. Do longer lives mean more diseases? Well, we've undergone a major transition from the circumstances of life that existed just 100 years ago. If you were to go to the early 20th century, most people would still be dying from infectious diseases. And the mortality pressure from infectious diseases was really pretty heavy. This was before we had many vaccines against killing infections. It was before we had antibiotics. But we changed that. And the state of play at the moment is that For most of us, we will die from a degenerative disease that is related to age. And for most of the conditions that take people to a hospital, age is the single biggest risk factor. It's the single biggest risk factor for cancer. It's the biggest risk factor for heart disease. It's the biggest risk factor for diabetes. It's the biggest risk factor for the great majority of conditions. And I hope I've persuaded you that in order to understand why this is so we really need to understand what it is about the ageing of cells and tissues that make us more vulnerable to pathology. So if we could just answer that set of questions, we should be, you know, sort of a great jump forward down the road to devising new treatments and maybe even cures for some of these conditions. So given the fact that, you know, sort of most of us will live long enough to die from one of these age-related conditions, and given, you know, sort of the amount that we invest in medical research... You might think that we would be currently harnessing all of this insight into the science of ageing in these programmes of research, but actually nothing could be further from the truth. Because if you look around the UK, if you look around all of the developed world, we have lots of cancer institutes, we have lots of institutes focused on heart disease, on rheumatology, on many other conditions. How many of those have programmes that address what ageing is bringing to that condition? And the answer is, you know, fewer than the fingers I have on one hand. They really don't yet exist. And this is something that is going to change. It's going to have to change. What we're going to have to see is greatly expanded interconnection between understanding what 
aging is contributing to the factors that really have an influence on the length of our lives uh, if we are to be able to make the progress that we need to make. Can we afford it? Well, we live in pretty uncertain financial times. Um, uh, This comes from the Sunday Telegraph three years ago, almost exactly three years ago as it happens. Um, And it shows that societally we're pretty ambivalent about what's happening in terms of the increasing length of our lives. This was from the financial pages, so perhaps it's understandable that people who are managing pension funds were were worrying about what is happening in terms of increasing longevity. But this is an extraordinarily blinkered view. The fact that people are living longer and our rate of increase in life expectancy is one that we kind of just take pretty much for granted. But let me just remind you, life expectancy at the moment in the UK, as in most developed countries, is increasing at the rate of two years for every decade that passes. What that means is that when you got out of bed this morning... You were not getting up to a 24-hour day. You were getting up to a 29-hour day. Because life expectancy has increased in the UK today by between five and six hours. 24 hours you're using today, five or six hours you're putting aside for later. Now, that's not news because it happened yesterday and the day before and the day before that. But when you put it in that context, you realise just how unbelievably fast life expectancy is increasing. So it's no wonder that society is feeling the strain. But is it bad news economically? Well, um, a few years ago, economists uh, in Chicago calculated the value to the US economy of the increase or the cost of the increase in life expectancy that's occurred uh, since 1970. And just ask yourself before I show you the answer... Do you think that the lengthening of human life in the US that has occurred since 1970 is a net drain on American society or a net contributor to American GDP? And I'm not going to ask you to answer that question, but I'm going to show you the answer now. And the answer is that since 1970, increasing life expectancy alone has contributed $73 trillion to US GDP. It's a huge economic benefit, and these numbers used to have bigger impacts a couple of weeks ago, but (laughs) (laughs) these days governments throw a trillion dollars around as as if it was nothing. So I'll have to rethink this slide. But instead of being an economic sort of burden, the fact that we're living longer is in fact one of the greatest current engines of economic growth. And I think we need to be aware of that because we haven't even begun yet to harness its potential, for example, for the generation of new wealth from developing some of the more exciting prospects for new services and technologies that can support people who are living longer and longer. Um, With climate change, you know, so we're all worried about climate change. But actually, climate change is providing the impetus for a huge surge in technological development that is going to make a lot of people and a lot of countries very rich. So you could, if you were a conspiracy theorist, even imagine that the data were being fabricated purely to generate a new avenue for economic exploitation. I don't suggest that's true for a moment. We've got to solve this big problem. But just like war, war is a time when a lot of people get rich. Climate change is a time when a lot of people get rich. Population ageing ought to be making a lot of people rich. 
it's not doing it very much at the moment because there aren't that many people who are recognizing the potential. And this is really the developing technology and its challenge that is offered by healthy aging. Um, and this is something that I know that by me is very well clued into. But I think I'd like just briefly, uh, before closing and taking a few questions, uh, just to talk about some of the issues and opportunities that arise when we bring the potential of technology up against the challenges of population aging. I said that environment was really important in the way that people live their lives and it's a big factor that governs health and quality of life at older ages. And what we have seen is that as human longevity has increased over the last century, two centuries, there have been extraordinary advances in technology. We just have to think about you know, the scale of these. It's unbelievable. And we also know that technology can and often does enhance the performance of care roles in society. But then when we look at this in the context of what is happening with older people, we can see that there are some pretty good exemplars that technology can enhance an older person's independent engagement in society. But the simple truth is that those exemplars are not getting far out beyond the research environment. And we need to introduce sweeping change. Technology is very important in helping people cope. We've had technologies to help people cope for a long time. These are a technology to help me cope with the fact that if I was a hunter-gatherer, I would go hungry tonight. We have technological aids that can overcome. You know, we have smart homes, we have remote monitoring, we have incontinence aids, we have all this stuff. And you know, I've been looking at the displays that you have celebrating 40 years of by me, and it's very impressive uh, what this institute has contributed in some of those technological advances. But as I said a moment ago, full-scale implementation still lags, and we were having a discussion about you know, sort of IP and the exploitation of some of the ideas that come from research. And at the moment, you know, the record in this area is just not great. And part of the reason it's not great is that our aspirations are very often limited by low societal expectations of older people. We have a pervasive negative view of older people and their potential contributions, and sadly this is shared by many, many older people themselves. Because if you hold a particular prejudice it's not necessarily going to change simply because you've become older. If you have negative views towards age and ageing when you're a young person, in many ways you're very unfortunate when you become old because you look in the mirror and suddenly, oh no, you've become one of those people that you didn't think much of when you were young. And so you turn those negative feelings against yourself and your self-image takes a nosedive. Now, um, I've been involved over the last couple of years with quite an interesting project that's going to be launched in two weeks' time out of the Government Office of Science. This is a foresight project, uh, and it's on mental capital and well-being. Now, these are the term mental capital, as far as the Government Office of Science uh, is aware, is a term that was specifically coined for this exercise. And I don't really need to explain it to you because it's sort of pretty obvious what it means. It's sort of the resource that is present in everything that's inside your head and what you do with what's inside your head. And we found that a very useful concept in this was to think in terms of a trajectory of mental capital. So that governs all the learning and nurturing in early life, the skills acquisition and application in the middle part of life, and then what happens in later life. And that's 
partly threatened by degenerative conditions like cognitive impairment, but it's also, uh, to a significant degree, just wasted. And it's wasted because of low societal expectations of what older people can contribute. So people are marginalised, they're forced to take retirement at a particular age, they're not then allowed an opportunity to use the mental capital either uh, for themselves or for the benefit of society. So one of the important sets of recommendations comes from looking rather more closely at that. Um, And we had an interesting exercise. This was conducted over two years with a very large number of scientists involved. And I'm not going to take you through the detail. I'm not even allowed to be showing you these slides tonight because they're embargoed until a couple of weeks. So you'll have to wipe your memories of them when you leave the room. But you can see if you look at the the detail that there's quite a lot of opportunity here identified for technological interventions. And there's plenty of opportunity for engineering and technology to play a part in the educational environment, in uh, media information, and, of course, in medical advances that are associated with this. Uh, And if you want to get even more detailed, there's a horrendously complicated slide which you really have to sort of sit down and look at in detail. But the important point is that these things are beginning now to be addressed and to be addressed in a comprehensive way that I think is providing a kind of policy wave of support for some of the innovations that we want to see happening Um, I'm not going to attempt to uh, unpack any of that slide. So we've got to make it happen. And how are we going to do that? Well, what we have to do is in part to stimulate the user pull, to get clearer recognition of what could be achieved, what is possible. But this is going to require really profound changes in attitude. And that is not going to be easy to bring about. Of course we've got to do the clever stuff with technologies, but we're doing that pretty well anyway. What we need to do is to sort of do it better and to do it in a way which connects the two. And again, I think this is something that Biomi is pretty good at. We've got to address resourcing issues. How's it going to happen? Are we going to do it with public funding? So this will be a service that's provided through NHS or social services or whatever. And pretty good technologies do get applied and developed through these routes. Are we going to do it through private funds? And I think there are going to be, 50 years from now, there will be a lot of people sitting on very large personal fortunes because they've had the vision and the entrepreneurial drive uh, to make this happen. In Newcastle, um, we've been uh, trying to address this, and something interesting has happened. One of my logos has disappeared. But um, we, someone who's known to some of you, Peter Gore, uh, who set up a company in this area, has recently taken up a position with us as professor of practice, and he sits between the Institute for Aging and Health, and the logo that's disappeared is the logo of the Newcastle Business School. Uh, and his job, really, is to uh, try to help us to structure how we, from an academic base, engage with the wider kind of commercial world, and this is involving our Northeast, uh, One Northeast Regional Development Agency, to create innovative partnerships with companies uh, and among academics from different disciplines and between academics and industry. Um, and of course, what's very important is that we need to take account of the users, uh, and very often in this, but again, not in by me, but within the field as a whole, the users tend to be brought in rather late in the day, so the idea is to bring the users to the fore and give them greater prominence in the design process. And um, I'd just like to say a little bit about a couple of the projects that are happening uh, within our institute, because these, I think, complement some of the things that are happening here in Bath. Um, We have one project called Kite, uh, which is for keeping in touch every day. 
Um, and this is to try to use technology to promote independence for people in the earlier stages of developing dementias. So this has been a very interesting project, bringing together people from the Alzheimer's Society, the Dementia Care Partnership, with some of the relevant industries, but also with researchers from a variety of backgrounds. So Louise Robinson here is a GP. Uh, Katie Britton is a social gerontologist. Patrick Olivier is a computing whiz. Uh, and Stephen Lindsay and Dan Jackson work with, with these people here. So what Kite has been doing has been uh, trying to address two needs, and there have been projects that have been focused on a few people with dementia who serve as exemplars of the, the needs that have to be satisfied. One of those I'm going to characterize here as the, the runner. And this is a person with dementia who has always run. And running is very important for him, and he wants to keep running. But it's becoming a bit worrying these days because he can go out for a run and he maybe doesn't find his way home. So the objective here has been to design and, uh, with the participation of the, of the individuals, a device that he can carry with him when he runs that has the functionalities of a mobile phone. He can be tracked if necessary. Um, and it brings in a whole range of issues in terms of design, uh, sort of weight, ease of use, aesthetics and so on. The second person is a guy, again, with mild to moderate dementia, who uh, I've called the driver. Um, and he enjoys driving, and he's perfectly safe behind the wheel. He just gets lost a lot, because the, the automatic skills that are required for safe driving are intact. But if anything happens to take him off his familiar route, or sometimes when he's on his familiar route, he becomes disoriented. So what started as a simple little drive to go out have a cup of tea somewhere can become a sort of day-long nightmare, both for this individual and for his family. So again, the idea is to use fairly simple technologies, to use GPS systems, emergency buttons to phone home, but again to sort of connect the design so that this works in a way that is comfortable. And in this instance, uh, one of the issues the design team had to take account of was that this individual had serious recurring anxiety about the emergency button on the device, because he was afraid that he would press it inappropriately and didn't quite understand what it was for. So these are the kinds of issues where there are real challenges and real problems that arise from the user end, uh, and the user end includes not only the person uh, that will have this device with them, but also the, the network around them, the spouse or the carer, and the engineers. And the aesthetics, I mean, we're also looking at incorporating some of this stuff in simple jewellery, pendant devices that can be worn around the neck that look nice, or brooches that people can wear, uh, you know, on their clothes when they go out. The other project uh, is a collaboration um, between Newcastle and York. Um, and this, again, has been one of these interesting projects which has looked at the ageing and health dimension from the perspective of the person and the user has looked at informatics research from the perspective of the computer scientist, and this is really looking at ambient and pervasive computing technology, um, and Culture Lab, which is a new sort of interactive facility established with the university for designers, arts people to come together and to work with other kinds of technologies. This is the ambient kitchen, um, and uh, I mean, this is a photograph of the kitchen as it's set up within Culture Lab. And the challenge is to help people with dementia to prepare food and drink uh, in an environment that has a considerable degree of sophistication and intelligence built into it. 
The environment has to have the capacity to recognize what's in it, and that may be the contents of the fridge, it may be the contents of the kettle, the contents of the coffee jar or whatever, and to reason about it. It's got to recognize what the person in that environment is doing. So it's got to have sort of activity monitors that can you know, watch to see what they're doing and whether they're attending to a pot that's on a hot plate and so on. And then it's got to intervene in an appropriate manner if it recognizes the necessity for doing this. And the approach that's been taken is to use sort of ubiquitous pervasive sensing systems, so a pressure-sensitive floor, tagging for um, you know, sort of many of the devices with simple RFID tags, uh, sensors on the appliances, on the utensils, cameras that are watching what's going on, and then displays that are situated around to provide appropriate prompts. And there's a lot of research, as those of you who are involved in these areas will appreciate, that's necessary to make all of this work. Because this is not off-the-shelf technology. It's not wildly sophisticated. There's a great deal of potential to take it a lot further. But it's, it's exciting and it's challenging and it can make a real difference in people's lives. It can take the burden off carers. And there was a study published a couple of years ago that showed that going back to the connection between the basic biology of ageing and the sort of the factors that crowd in our lives, that people who are caring for those with a long-term illness like dementia were ageing faster in that there was more evidence of accumulated damage to the DNA of their cells than there was for other people. So once again, you think of care as being something that just, you know, it, it gives you a horrible life. Well, it does give you a horrible life, but it also makes you age faster so that you yourself, as well as you know, having the quality of your life eroded, will actually become a person who needs care sooner than you might do otherwise. So there's huge potential to be able to deliver reinforcing cycles of benefit. Now, um, I'm going to close now with uh, just this quote, which I like from UB Blake, uh, because I think what we have to do is how to sort of build this kind of thinking about preparing for the life course uh, we're going to live a long time, the majority of us. Uh, you know, sort of life expectancy is increasing all the time. But we live life, for the most part, certainly when we're young, as if there was no tomorrow. We don't have to all the time be thinking about, oh gosh, what am I going to be like when I'm old? And sort of. But we do need to have this kind of consciousness, this life course perspective built into our thinking. And I'm going to leave you with um, some... Uh, just some information that you can get. The first is a shameless plug for a book I published a few years ago because these days I'm really worrying about my pension fund. So please do, do, do buy it and I'll get the royalties. Um, but if you do want to get an update on what's happening in terms of scientific understanding of ageing, um, uh, there's that book there. The Wreath Lectures that Roger kindly referred to, the book is no longer available but you can uh, get all of the text of the lectures from the BBC website. Uh, so those are, those are personal vanity exercises, but much more important, I think, are the last two entries here. Um, if you haven't looked at the House of Lords Science and Technology Select Committee report from 2005, it has some pretty hard-hitting things to say about what we need to do individually, societally, from a business perspective, to gear up to the challenges of population ageing. And Lord Drayson, uh, who's just been appointed Science Minister was a member of this uh, committee, um, and I think he's 
pretty spot on in terms of his understanding of what has to happen. So I'm encouraged uh, that he's taken up that position. And then the last reference here, the the web link, is uh, to um, an EU-sponsored activity that took place last year and to which Roger made an important contribution. And this was really a, a process that culminated in a conference that was called Changing Expectations of Life. And it contains a wealth of material from the perspectives of medicine, biology, social science, uh, industry, technology, finance. Um, And it's there for you to use for free. Um, And I'm pleased that it's having major impact on policy development uh, and funding priorities, not only within the UK but across Europe. So once again, congratulations to BIME on uh, achieving its, its... very significant 40th milestone, and thank you very much for your attention. I'm not going to abuse my position as, uh, as chairman and here with the responsibility of closing out the session, <laughs> so whilst my mind is now buzzing with questions, we don't have a lot of time, so please... Are there any questions for Tom from the audience? Yes. Mm. Offered to take on mm. Thank you. We're often told about the benefits of the Mediterranean diet. How does that affect aging apart from the cardiovascular mm. protection? Well, you're absolutely right. And, and adherence to a Mediterranean diet actually does produce a significant reduction in the risk of uh, ill health in later life. Um, Cardiovascular protection is only a part of it because the protection that's afforded to the cardiovascular system is also afforded to other systems as well. The cardiovascular system is not unimportant in its own right, uh, but the ingredients of the Mediterranean diet contain factors that are thought to be supportive of the body's natural maintenance systems. So uh, fresh fruits, vegetables, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, the, the right kinds of fats, low levels of fats overall. And all of these are, you know, what's good for the cardiovascular system is actually good for your brain and good for your bones and good for other organs too. My understanding of the increase in ageing is that most of it is in the post-reproductive phase. Yeah. But it would seem to me if I was the great creator, that I would have shared it out in the pre-reproductive, the reproductive, and the post-reproductive. Why, um, using sort of teleological arguments, has that not happened? Um, Well, I mean, it it isn't actually true that... There's a complication in humans, uh, and that is... uh, There's a complication specifically in women, and that is menopause. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll come back to menopause in a moment, but, but actually the, the improvement in health and vitality extends over you know, sort of most of the adult life range. Of course, the lengthening of life expectancy occurs by adding years to the previous life expectancy, and so those are years in later life. But actually the evidence is that you know, if you look at people who are still in the reproductive years of life, that people who are reaching their sort of 40s, 50s, uh, are in better health than they were in previous generations. But, but, but the counter to the question is, why doesn't puberty get later as opposed to earlier? All right, well, that's, I mean, that's... Compl- 
Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Puberty gets earlier because puberty is regulated by nutrients to a significant extent. So we are better nourished, we grow, we reach reproductive maturity earlier. If you... Um, it has the potential to become quite a complicated answer, so maybe it should be developed later. But actually, we're getting, we're getting, we're getting sort of multiple effects from the improvement in living circumstances that in, includes the improvement in nutrition. Because we've got better nutrition, we are growing better. Uh, we're reaching reproductive maturity sooner, on the whole, um, uh, we are also extending the healthy period of adult life. And, of course, we are extending the period in the later part of life as well. So there is, there is a life course benefit resulting from these kinds of improvements. Um, I mentioned that menopause was a special case. Menopause is a special case. It's unique in our species. Uh, and it has a particular significance that relates to the adaptations that are associated with our evolving a big brain, I mean, uh, which is good for longevity but bad for childbirth. And, and it gets... If you, if you go to um, Time of Our Lives, you'll find there's a whole chapter that will explain that to you. And I think I'd better not trespass on the goodwill of the chair to try to, to unpack that now. I was intrigued by your ambient kitchen because yeah. one of the big problems for both stroke patients as well as dementia yeah. is sequencing, yes. getting things in the right order, putting the water in the kettle, not yeah. putting the tea in the... so forth. Does your ambient kitchen deal with that? It can do. It has that capacity. So if that becomes a problem, I mean, it, it specifically monitors, uh, you know, sort of... And, and it can be extended. It's a prototype at the moment. But, but you know, there are sensors, for example, in the, in, the, the, in the jar that holds the tea bags. There are sensors in the jar that holds the coffee. There are sensors in the kettle. There are pressure sensors in the work surface where the mug is placed. So it would actually be child's play uh, to write in a, a, a capacity to detect that things are being done in the right sequence and then have a, a prompt, uh, which could be a, a loudspeaker prompt or it could be a, a flat screen on the wall that says, you know, don't forget the tea bag. Don't forget, you know, don't forget this. I mean, this is the capacity. And once you've got the capacity, you can use it in very flexible ways. And you can tailor those ways to the particular cognitive deficit of the individual, which may change over time. Thank you. One last, one last question up here. Can you, see any, can you see any way whereby occupational health and ergonomics can so improve people's working life that it becomes less of a pain to continue working after 65. Mm, mm. would this help longevity? It's a a very good question, and I think it touches on the whole issue of of working for longer. Um, For many, it really varies according to the nature of your job. You know, sort of... For, for those of us who, who work with the mind, you know, sort of we, we, we're not clobbering our bodies. And therefore, I mean, ergonomics is the quality of the chair you sit in and the kind of keyboard and screen that you work with. So there's obviously things that could be done. I think what's more interesting is when, when you look at people who have physically demanding jobs for whom the capacity to continue working at later life is very often limited by the cumulative damage that you've done. I mean, I live in a rural environment and... You know, whenever I go to a farmer's mart where people are, you know, sort of buying and selling livestock, farmers 
have the most amazingly damaged bodies. You know, sort of they. It's it's quite incredible to see a group of farmers together because they're a bunch of crocs. I mean, they, you know, they they're really really nice, but they're all walking lopsided. They've got this that and that problem, and of course, you know, there are other you know sort of different professions. Ballet dancers have certain kinds of problems. So so I mean, the answer is yes, it it is possible because one can exploit the malleability of the aging process. And I think the one fallacy that we all sort of slip into when we think about retirement is that, you know, for most people, working longer is a really good thing, provided your job is not wrecking you. It provides you with stimulus, it provides you with social interaction, connectedness, it provides you with more money. And it's very striking how rapidly people fall into ill health following retirement. And that tends, that's because we have this all-or-none model. So you work, you know, so 100% and then you retire and bang, you're working 0%. And nothing could be worse for your morale and health and everything. The rest of it. And we've just got to change that. I mean, for many people, retirement is the escape from a rubbish job. Um, and, you know, retirement itself shouldn't be bad. What we've got to work on is the quality of the job. And this is where your point about ergonomics and, and everything else. And, and there are important things, actually, in this Foresight report that's coming out about, you know, sort of work and the workplace. Um, I think it's one of the biggest issues that we have to face. If I can just tell one little anecdote before the chairman looks uh, too harshly at me. When I did the Reith lectures, just before I did the lectures, the BBC commissioned a, a Mori poll on public attitudes to ageing. And one of the questions that they asked was about attitudes to retirement. And they had five opinions about retirement that you had to say which one you agreed with. And at one extreme was the statement, I just can't wait to retire. Uh, and they applied this questionnaire to people in different age categories. And what was really interesting was that among 16 to 24-year-olds, two-thirds of them said, I just can't wait to retire. <laughs> Thanks. Well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, it has long been my claim not to understand economics. I used to listen to these experts, but in the last year or month or week, I'm not sure that anybody understands <laughs> economics. But when I see claims that, that the aged folk who are sitting there ready to be looked after, and that that is providing a $73 trillion boost to the economy... That really sends my mind into, uh, into, into a tailspin, and I will seize the opportunity later on this evening to quiz Tom <laughs> more about that. I have long divided the population into everybody who consumes goods and services, and the few, or maybe not so few, who provide the goods and services. I'm looking for, for some balance there seeing those who did nothing but consume as, well, for want of a better word, parasites. I apologise for not, not uh, choosing a more politically correct word to use than that. But Tom is now challenging that, and I, I, do, I, th I think I understand some of the logic of what he was saying. And it certainly challenges, challenges me when thinking out through Bimey's 40 years as to what it's all about. I always saw Bimey's role as being essentially 
a, a moral one, where they focused on those small groups of disabled that the commercial world couldn't be bothered with. And that's where Bimey's roots are, looking at those who were not being provided for. And I'm proud of my association with Bimey because I felt that it did that and did it very well. However, when I see the context that Tom has painted just now, he's putting more of an economic justification for it, as well as, as, well as the, the moral one. And it's, and it's nice to have, have the, the two. So, Tom, thank you very much. Your lecture is now going to make me go away and think some more about what Bime is all about and what its future should be. Um, and uh, I'm sure it'll, Roger and I will have several chats over um, applying what we've just heard to, to Bime and the policy and strategy for the future. So whilst this wasn't an overly engineering and science-based lecture, <coughs> it was extremely relevant, very well presented, very enjoyable, and thank you. <laughs>